0: Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. For today's case, we go back again to 2007, and this time we head to Manchester in the northwest of England. Just before we get started, I just need to let you know a few things. I don't think I've recommended a podcast before on this show, but there's one I strongly suggest you listen to if you haven't already, and that is Untold, the story of the murder of Daniel Morgan. I've been vaguely aware of this case and the success of the podcast but after listening to all the episodes in two days whilst travelling this week please take my word for it that the podcast is an absolute must listen and season two is coming shortly. On Friday I had an interesting chat on Twitter with Polski, who told me I needed to get some music on the show. I sort of agree and periodically I look for music I then get distracted by other things. I wonder if you could recommend a piece of music that might fit the podcast. Okay and we've ruled out any Slipknot or of course Loser by Beck. Maybe you'd be able to compose some. Nothing complex but please do let me know. And a huge thank you to my latest supporters on Patreon. Ruth Wickens and Anne Alderman. Thank you both so much. As a Patreon supporter you will receive bonus episodes and other insights Whilst also enabling me to make more and better quality podcasts. Who knows, maybe even with music. Please take a look at patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime to see how you could support the show further. Finally, before we start, please take a look at our website, UKTrueCrime.com, to see the interview I published this week with UK True Crime author Monica Weller. She talks about writing her new book, Injured Parties. Okay. I'm a touch bias here, but I think it's a fascinating read. Manchester is England's second largest city after London. And as a city, Manchester is known for having two of the largest football clubs in the country, in Manchester United and City. Both are almost as well known as the most famous club in English football, the mighty Leeds United. Many people across the globe associate Manchester with the Manchester music scene of the 80s, from which groups including New Order, The Smiths, The Stone Roses, The Happy Mondays, Inspiral Carpets, James, and The Charlatans emerged. All of the music from these bands still sound great today, don't you think? In July 2007, 36-year-old Beverly Samuels lived in Manchester with her 13-year-old son, Fred. Beverly was a nurse at Manchester Royal Infirmary, and she was very popular with colleagues as a fun, outgoing person, who was also a very committed and talented nurse. Her son Fred was a big Man United fan. He was well known in the neighbourhood for riding his bike or other children and also offering a free bike repair service in his garden, a bit of a young entrepreneur there. He was a typical 13-year-old who, when not tinkering with his bike, was into his music, football, clothes and just hanging out with his mates. Beverly's 18-year-old daughter, Keisha, lived with her father nearby. Beverly had split from her long-term partner and father of the children, IT worker Fred Wizart, a few years before, but they spoke regularly and Fred played a major role in the lives and welfare of his children. Both parents were very excited for Keisha's future. She dreamed of being a barrister and she had just finished her A-levels. If she achieved the right results, she would start this path in a few months by taking a law degree at the University of Manchester. A diligent student, Keisha had worked incredibly hard for her exams. When they were completed, she posted on Facebook that she was now free and would be able to put her days as a recluse behind her. As well as her academic success, Keisha was a talented singer and hoped that one day she might make it in the music business. In 2005, you may recall, you might have seen this, she appeared on the ITV programme Stars In Their Eyes performing Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart. Oh, I do hate that song though, don't you? And the video, oh, can't stand it. Keisha also had a CD produced of her music after she beat off hundreds of music hopefuls to win a competition by a local radio station, Carnival FM, in Manchester. Shortly after Beverly split from her partner in 2004, she met a man called Pierre Williams, and the two of them had pursued an intermittent on off relationship ever since. He was born in the Moss Side area of Manchester, but he now lived in Birmingham where he had a young son. He was in the habit of turning up unexpectedly at Beverly's house and using his set of keys to let himself in. On July 11, 2007, he did just that and ended up staying the night. The next day, Beverly told her cousin, Selena Brown that although Williams had stayed the night, he'd stormed off in a temper as she'd refused to have sex with him as she was having her period. But Beverly wasn't surprised by this behaviour. Williams had a very high sex drive, and this sort of behaviour just wasn't unusual for him. Williams headed off to party in Manchester's vibrant gay village sector with a couple of his female friends. By all accounts that evening, Williams was his usual cheery self, and unsuccessfully tried to go home with at least one woman for sex. Meanwhile, Beverly's daughter Keisha had been in London, looking around prospective universities, in case she didn't get the grades to go for her first choice of Manchester. She got home really late, and her mum's house was easier to get to, so she decided to stay in the spare room there, being dropped off by a taxi in the early hours of July the 13th. By the early evening of July the 13th, Selena Brown, Beverly's cousin, was becoming concerned. Neither her cousin Beverly or Keisha were answering their phone, and she hadn't seen any movement from the house all day. This was most unlike them. With a growing feeling of dread, she put a ladder up against the house and peered into Beverly's bedroom. What she saw that evening in Beverly's bedroom can never be erased from her mind. She immediately called the police. When the police arrived shortly after 7pm they found the dead bodies of Beverly, Keisha and Fred in the house. All three had been murdered at some time between 3.15am and 7.30am that morning. The scene was way beyond horrific. As they took video of the scene experienced officers who had witnessed some terrible crimes openly shed tears. The attacker had tied Keisha's hand behind her back and sexually assaulted her. Kneeling on her back, he delivered at least four blows of a hammer or a similar blunt instrument with such ferocity that it severed her ear. Her naked body had her black knickers placed on her head. Her mum, Beverly, had been raped for her skull was crushed with at least seven blows from a hammer. The body of Fred, her 13-year-old son, was found next to her covered with a duvet. Fred had a fractured cheekbone, probably the result of crashing into the hardwood floor after being struck to the head. A deep bruise was consistent with the attacker's knee being pressed into Fred's back during the assault. The evidence suggests that the murder weapon was an engineer's hammer with a long wooden shaft. This weapon was found by Beverly's bed. Of significant concern for the police was the control shown during the attack. It wasn't a frenzied attack by a man using wild and discriminate blows. The person who murdered the family did so by delivering accurate and deliberate blows to the head of each victim. They they resembled more execution-style murders. Fred Wizard received the call we all dread that evening, and he raced to his children's home to be consoled by neighbours. He was heard screaming, Why my children, in the street? Neighbours spoke of heart-rending scenes as members of the family, including Fred, arrived to be informed of the deaths. One neighbour said, I saw Fred. He was pacing the square with his head in his hands. He looked utterly devastated. We can only imagine this scene of raw grief. Superintendent Paul Saville, who led the investigation, initially refused to answer questions on whether three bodies were found in the house or how they were killed. But he later briefed the press on the man they urgently wanted to speak to about the murders, Beverley's on-off partner, Pierre Williams. As police started to dig into the history of Williams, they uncovered some disturbing information. Williams had a string of 47 convictions dating back to 1991, which included deception, attacks on police officers, drink driving, assault and theft. As early as his teenage years, he was accused by a girlfriend of sexually abusing her, although no further action was taken. At around the same time, he developed a fascination with the Bible and with spiritual rituals Williams was arrested once as a teenager on suspicion of murder over the killing of a man called Carl Stapleton in Manchester. He was detained for three days after it was discovered he'd been in his company only four minutes before he was stabbed to death. He was eventually released by police after questioning. Stapleton was a gangster associated with the notorious Gooch Gang of Manchester. Another girlfriend told police that on one occasion he strangled her until she passed out. Before tying her up and raping her. On another occasion, she said he made her watch a pornographic film and ordered her to reenact scenes from it after telling her he was carrying a gun. She'd reported the two incidents, which happened in 2003, to police, but she was reluctant to go ahead of a prosecution. On the first occasion, she said that he drank a bottle of vodka before trying to strangle her as she slept. He bound her hands behind her back with tape and electrical wire, cut her pyjamas off, gagged her, blindfolded her, put a bag over her head and then tied her to a bed. She told police, He was saying I'm going to kill you one of these days, and I knew he really meant it. He was going to kill me. They also found that Keisha had felt uneasy in his presence after he commented on her bonny figure. Beverly too, it transpired, was frightened of her boyfriend telling a friend that, He's going to kill me one day. Williams handed himself into a police station in Birmingham in the early hours of July the 14th after talking to a former girlfriend. When arrested over the triple murder, during 3 days of questioning, Williams repeatedly answered no comment. With no evidence, detectives were about to release him. But when officers managed to discover his address in Selly Oak, Birmingham, they found books about forensic science and crime scene investigation. And crucially, a shoe print matching one taken from the scene of the murders. Williams was charged and his lies started to unravel. At the time of his arrest, Williams was carrying a Bible with passages highlighted in pen. One passage, marked with an asterisk, read God's word is alive and working and is sharper than a double edged sword. It cuts all the way into us where the soul and spirit are joined to the center of our joints and bones and it judges the thoughts and feelings in our hearts a container of cocoa butter at the crime scene became significant when 3 pages were underlined in ballpoint pen and the words special oil highlighted in 3 places detectives also found several other significant passages underlined including moses took some of the special oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and he sprinkled them on Aaron and Aaron's clothes. Gruesomely, police suspected that he'd mixed cocoa butter oil with his victim's blood in a macabre attempt to reflect one of the passages. Other passages too bore echoes of disturbing details of the attacks. Police managed to piece together William's movements after the murders. That morning, he'd headed to a building society in Manchester city centre, where the cashier described him as calm, relaxed and smiley, as he withdrew £100, adding that he was pleasant and quite chatty. He later caught a train to Birmingham, where he sold his victim's mobile phones to a cab driver and a Birmingham stall holder for £60. Pierre Williams was tried at Manchester Crown Court. At his trial, he denied the three murders and sexually assaulting Beverly and Keisha. The prosecution told the jury that the crux of the case was that Williams had carried out execution-style murders after Beverley had rejected his demands for sexual satisfaction. Giving evidence, Williams admitted being in the house, but he claimed an unknown hooded intruder had carried out the killings. This was despite overwhelming forensic evidence, including blood on his wallet and clothing, and bloody footprints which matched his trainers. He told the jury he was standing in the back of Beverly's garden, when a man walked away quickly from the grisly scene. Giving evidence, the 33-year-old said he loved Beverly, her daughter Keisha and son Fred, and the way they were beaten repeatedly with a hammer to the heads was something you would not do to an animal. He claimed Beverly had ordered him out of the house after they were woken by several loud knocks at the door in the early hours of the morning. He claimed a man would kill her if he found the pair together in bed. Up to an hour later, He said he saw the hooded man rush from the address as he waited outside. He said he went into the house where he briefly picked up the blood-stained hammer by Beverly's bed after finding her body. But he couldn't account for how blood from each of the victims was found on his shorts, which were recovered from a washing basket in Keisha's room. He admitted having sex with Beverly on the night of the murders, and said that he and Keisha also had sexual contact in the teenager's bedroom, added... It ended when I heard the front door knock. He dashed back into Beverly's room and woke her up. She said, He'll kill me if he sees you in here. William said he waited in the back garden for up to an hour when he saw someone come out of the house very quickly. Going back inside, he saw blood on the walls before discovering each of the bodies. I was thinking, Why did this have to happen? I was panicking, he said. He then left the house, locked the front door, and a bus to Manchester City Centre before heading home to Birmingham. When asked why he did not phone the police immediately, he said he was afraid that detectives would think he'd committed the crimes because he was at the scene. Was it you? asked the prosecution. No, not at all, he replied. Something like that, you would not do that to an animal. At the conclusion of the ten-day trial, the jury of seven men and five women took just three hours and fifteen minutes, to find Williams guilty of the murders and sexual assaults. When the first verdict was read out, he scuffled with guards in the dock. He shouted, ''You bastards, I'm effing innocent!'' as seven guards dragged him from the dock at Manchester Crown Court. He was taken into their cells, still shouting, ''I'm innocent!'' and Judge Pitchford refused to allow him back into the dock to hear his sentence following the outburst. Beverly's family and friends applauded, cheered, and openly wept as Williams was given three life terms, which means he will spend at least 38 years in prison. The judge said in his sentencing remarks, Pierre Williams is a man with a low threshold for sexual frustration. Just as he had in the past with a previous girlfriend, he took out his frustration by treating Beverly and her daughter with gross sexual aggression. He concluded that only Williams, who had a sexual history of violence towards women, could know what terror and pain he'd inflicted upon his victims before they died. After the sentencing, a statement from the family was read out on the court steps. Between the three of them, Beverly, Keisha and Fred were an ordinary happy family, living a regular, happy existence, and their names have now been thrown into the spotlight because of the perverted actions of one evil individual. It is inconceivable that any punishment would ever fit this heinous crime And the only comfort any of the family can take from this court case is that Williams will hopefully never be able to cause this much heartache to another family. He has shown no remorse for his actions, maintaining his innocence, despite the overwhelming evidence, and in doing so he has doubled the family's anguish by putting them through this difficult court case. He should never be allowed into society again. He is a weak man who is a danger to women and children. In a victim impact statement read to the court... The children's father, Fred, said, There is such emptiness inside me and anything I do. I feel it's pointless without them. I don't have any goals anymore. My life was my kids. Everything I did or didn't do was for them. Beverly was a good person. She was the kind of person who would do anything for you. She was too kind and generous for her own good sometimes. Why, why, why did this person have to do what he did? Not only did he take their lives... But he tried to take their dignity too. He did what he did for his own sexual gratification, and that sickens me. Beverly's grandma, Margaret Gaynord, said, There's not a single day when I don't sit and cry. I'm completely amazed I've any tears left. I've cried so much. Detective Superintendent Ian Foster said, I suspect there'll be a number of women who've suffered at his hands. He's your typical cold blooded killer. He does not accept rejection. This was a cold, calculated attack. Williams' reaction to the verdicts is telling. During the trial, he maintained a facade of composure, taking notes, dressing smartly and expressing sympathy for the grieving family. The police felt that his reaction in the dock was more like the real Pierre Williams, saying, he will not accept the verdicts. He sees it as a massive form of rejection. And just like the women who rejected him, his reaction was one of violence. Indeed, the Manchester Evening Post reported in 2010 that since he was jailed, police have become aware of at least three other women who allege Williams either raped or sexually assaulted them during the 1980s and 90s. Each of the women wanted to come forward to inform the police, but they didn't want to pursue the matters further. Keisha's A-level results came back after her death. She was awarded A grades for Law and English and a B grade in Philosophy, and had won a scholarship to study law at the University of Manchester. By now, in 2017, she'd have completed her degree and be starting her career. Fellow students released 100 balloons on August the 16th, 2007, the day she would have collected her A-level results. Her English and philosophy result papers were attached to the balloons. A floral tribute left her at her home summed up the feelings she inspired. It read, Keisha, you are always a star. Now we know you are shining down on us. Heaven was missing an angel. But why did they take you? Meanwhile, Williams was scared in prison, asking to be segregated from fellow prisoners and members of the Manchester Gooch gang as he feared reprisals for his actions. I suspect he's every right to be concerned for his safety, don't you? In 2010, he appealed, but he was pretty much laughed out of court. The three judges ruled that his appeals against both his convictions and sentence were without foundation, branding his arguments clearly frivolous and absurd. The horror we have spoken about today in a normal Manchester street is pretty much impossible to comprehend. The more you research what took place, the worse it gets. There is even some suggestion that Williams didn't kill Beverly first, but he just stunned her whilst he killed her children, saving her murder until the end. We can only hope that Fred, Keisha and Beverly did not witness anything except for their own assault and murder. I don't know about you, but the motive still troubles me. Was Williams really motivated to carry out this attack purely as Beverly had spurned him sexually the night before? This is what was suggested by the prosecution, and in his previous life we see that Williams was not able to accept sexual rejection. But as a motive for killing the whole family, it seems that was the case. With his appeal rejected, Williams' life is now effectively over, as he is behind bars until he is over 70. But of course that's little consolation to the friends and family of his victims. I wonder what Williams is thinking right now as you listen to this podcast locked up in his cell. Are his actions of that early morning on his mind all the time? Is he in denial, real denial? In time will he feel any remorse? And what of his young son? I wonder if he'll ever know his dad. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast and I look forward to talking again next week. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Really, really helpful for us, preferably one of the five star variety. Or why not head over to our Facebook page to talk about this case. Until next week, cheerio from me. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realise what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy. Just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit Instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.